as I said, I grew up on a dairy farm. Who's ever been on a dairy farm? A few. A lot of cows. Now, what that means is, see, I had three sisters, a mum, over 120 Frisian cows. There was dad, the dog, me, and the bull. So we were surrounded by women. So that was my life growing up. Now, as a little boy, I loved summer because the cows would produce more milk. Uh, and when the cows were milked, the milk would, would uh, end up in this really big stainless tank, uh, like half the size of this room. And as a little boy, I'd stand there and watch and wait. During the evening milking, uh, the milk would fill a tank and begin to overflow. Uh, and of course, you had this white milk overflowing onto a floor. It would form streams of white glistening milk that would find their way to where the cows were on a floor covered with a lot of cow manure. Uh, and so the contrast was amazing. Streams of white milk finding channels through a floor covered uh, in ugly cow poo uh, to, the, to, to the drain. And I share that because I think it's a little bit like what God sees from heaven. Uh, depraved and, and sinful and lost and fallen human race, uh, the ugliness of unbelief and sin that has overrun his creation. But yet there is a beautiful stream uh, of glistening grace uh, from the beginning to the end of Scripture. And of course, uh, we see that most magnificently in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark wants us to know that this Jesus, this, this grace, just like the milk would wash away uh, the cow poo and, and at the end the floor would be left glistening white. Uh, well, that's the effect of God's grace for us, making us clean, washing away once for all time, all of our sin, uh, so that God looks down and sees people who've been overrun by God's grace. He just sees us as whiter than snow beautiful as his children. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is how Mark opens his gospel because he wants to show us uh, that all of God's grace uh, finds itself in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to help us to meet and to respond appropriately to his Son, Jesus Christ. Christianity is about responding to the good news of God's grace in Jesus, his Son, the Son of God. As we read through Mark's Gospel, uh, we're told in the first chapter that as Jesus begins his public ministry, he came proclaiming this good news of God, announcing that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is near, and so we should repent and put our trust in the Gospel. And as you've uh, heard in recent weeks, Jesus' preaching tour starts well. Uh, people are amazed, astounded at the authority of his teaching, at the power and authority of his word, uh, to release people overrun by the power of evil, to heal people of any ailment, even to bring people back from the dead, as we saw last week. But not everyone is enamoured. As Jesus' word spreads, it's getting mixed responses, increasingly grumbly responses. The educated, the elite, the religious, they're opposing, beginning to oppose Jesus. 
And so what Jesus does in chapter 4 of Mark, he tells a parable, a parable of a sower and four soils, the seed of the sower falling on four different soils. And this parable is like an interpretive lens to help us understand the progress of God's word in the rest of Mark, to understand why it is that more people aren't signing up to follow Jesus, to find out why actually most people, um, they don't care or they're vigorously opposed to Jesus and his word and anyone who speaks his word. That brings us to Mark chapter 6. Last week, Tim did a great job of showing us the sort of faith and repentance that Jesus commends, uh, the faith and repentance that saves a person from sin and hell. As we've just heard, Mark chapter 6, it's quite different. Uh, let's take a, a poll. Who thinks, uh, asked you to, was there more sort of ugly unbelief in Mark 6 or more beautiful grace? Okay, you can only choose one. I'm watching. You can only put your hand up once. So who's, who thinks, what, what are they here? More, more sort of ugly unbelief in Mark 6. Excellent. Be confident. It's okay. Uh, and um, what, what about more beautiful grace? Who heard more grace? Who's just not sure? Radio, okay. <laughs> That's fine. But at the headings in this chapter, they do probably um, quite helpfully show us the three ways this passage breaks up. What we hear is God giving everyone the opportunity to hear the word of the gospel and to respond. And as we heard, the first opportunity uh, is for Jesus' own family and relatives and hometown. Verses 1 to 6. Have a look with me. Verse 1. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. There are eyewitnesses about all that is going on. Not a bad definition of a Christian. A Christian is someone who has left behind whatever they need to in order to properly and wholly follow Jesus. Jesus' homecoming starts off with promise. We read that many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Now, if there are any here who are exploring the truth of Jesus, like I, 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 I did as a 25-year-old, if you're still trying to work things out about Jesus, these three questions are not a bad place to start. I mean, where did Jesus get his godlike authority and power from? What does it mean that the world has never be, before heard someone teach with such wisdom and authority? And how on earth did Jesus do so many miracles? The Apostle John says it would fill up uh, the biggest library in the world. The answer to these questions for people in Jesus' hometown and, of course, people here this morning and in our hometowns, those answers are always to be found in the Bible. The first part of the Bible, the Jewish scriptures, are sprinkled with hundreds and hundreds of prophetic promises about the sorts of things that God's people, and in fact anyone who bothers to look, should be on the lookout for when God's Saviour King arrived. It's why in Luke's account of this same passage, when Jesus came home, he also records one of those passages from Isaiah chapter 61, that Jesus taught on. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. After Jesus opened up that passage, we're told that he sat down and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in me. It helps us to understand why Jesus' own family and relatives react so badly to Jesus proclaiming that he is God's Messiah they've been waiting for. The guy they went to school with. The auntie who changed his nappy. Probably didn't have nappies back then, did they? What? What? He's God's promised saviour king. That is, we can appreciate why it would have been hard for them to wrap their head around the idea that this hometown boy was actually the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah King. It just highlights for us how easy it's to miss the truth about another person and certainly the truth about Jesus because of familiarity. We become familiar, creates expectations, prejudices. You see, they grew up with him. They, they think, they think they know him. And let's face it, uh, in, in the medical world at least, people who come along and claim to be God or to have God-like powers, um, we, we have certain labels for people like that. They took offence at him. Literally, they were scandalised by Jesus and his preaching. That word, it's a very, very strong word in the original language. Um, it's... it's um, it's the idea of, a, um, of almost being caused to sin. It's like Jesus turning up. Uh, they, either, they either had to choose to follow him or not, and it, 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 revealed, it revealed and showed out their, their, their true colours, their unbelief. I don't know when you were last so offended or upset by someone that you got really angry or emotional at them. Well, that, that's what's going on here. In fact, Luke records... That's so upset with Jesus and his claims, the family and the relatives try to march him out to a cliff and throw him off the cliff. Don't know if your family ever tried to do that with you, but um, it's a pretty ugly reaction. And the fact that Jesus himself was amazed at their unbelief helps us to understand how profound was their unbelief. It was absolute, absolute. And then we're told that Jesus, therefore, was not able to do many miracles there. Just take a moment to think of three people you know in your life who are not yet Christian. Okay, I'll just give you a moment. Think of three people. Everyone's got three. You might have more. I wonder how many of them are family members or relatives. It's hard with family, isn't it? So what has been your family, your relatives, what's been their reaction to you becoming a Christian or living as a Christian? Someone who comes to church. One a sort of uh, freshly minted brother-in-law some years ago, uh, he told me uh, early on in our relationship, he said, look, I'm an atheist, 
And uh, I believe in history. And please don't ever try and talk to me about God or religion. Uh, so it's been pretty hard to talk to him. Another brother-in-law asked Geeta and I to please stop inviting him and his family uh, to Christmas carols and to any uh, church-related event. Now, it's a little bit of an insight into some of the uh, mixed responses my own family have to Jesus and to, to me being a Christian, but I, I wonder what that is like for you. It's so sad when we get uh, this sort of rejection uh, from people we know and we love. Uh, we long for God to save them. Who knows how many more opportunities God will give them uh, to respond to Jesus and to be saved. But it raises a question. When we get such strong uh, reactions, how should we respond to knockback after knockback after knockback? How do you respond when you keep inviting people to, to come to the Christianity Explored that is starting this week or to, uh, to come to church or, or a Christian event here? It can be really disappointing, draining, and if that reaction is strong, it can be so tempting just to sort of, I'm just going to keep my head down for a while and just go quietly along <laughs> Uh, Try not to get noticed. Uh, Well, that brings us to uh, the second uh, section, which I've called uh, Opportunity Given for All. But it also brings us here to a little, uh, to a beautiful vein of grace, uh, a little stream of grace that's running through this passage. I wonder if you can pick it up. Of course, it's there in the second half of verse 6, isn't it? And Jesus went about among the villagers teaching. From the ugliness of his own family and relatives' unbelief. Jesus doesn't give up. He doesn't think, oh, maybe I'll just go up a mountain and pray for a week. (laughs) No, no, straight away he thinks, okay, others need to hear. The Father's mission uh, is that the gospel goes to all nations. And so he just goes on to the next town. How beautiful. Jesus' commitment to his Father's mission to save the lost is unwavering. It's a beautiful modelling, of course, for those uh, trainee disciples, his 12 apostles, isn't it? Uh, What beautiful modelling, how to respond when you get knockbacks, Um, when you experience the ugliness of unbelief, your whole family. How wise of Jesus then that he decides at this point for his 12 trainee apostles to send them out to have a go in twos. And so he gives them some of his authority uh, to do the sort of miracles that he's been doing to show that they really are authentic, that they belong to him and the gospel that they preach is the true gospel and it is just as powerful for any who will repent and believe. Now, of course, that's not the same for us today. It's unique. The apostles, the prophets, of course, are responsible for the scriptures, but it's so we can have confidence that this is the true and living word of God. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what a stunningly beautiful and grace-filled response of Jesus to, in response to such um, hard unbelief, he thinks, oh, I'm going to multiply the messengers now. I'm going to send out as many as I can to all of the towns and the regions Because no one should miss out. No one should not be given a chance to hear the word of God, to have that opportunity to repent and believe and be saved from hell to heaven. 
And so we read in verses 7 and 8 what Jesus did. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Sounds a bit strange. And I've come to Malaysia for nine days. I thought, look, just to save time and hassle, I'm just going to bring carry-on luggage, which is what I was able to do. Now, even though I'm staying uh, with Dean Andrew and Judy Chia, even though I knew their hospitality would be amazing, and it is, do you know it didn't occur to me to not bring a bag, to not bring at least some clothes? It certainly didn't occur, occur to me to not bring my credit card or any money and that they would just pay for everything. Although I'm sure they would if I asked them. Maybe we'll try that next time, but... <laughs> See, this is strange, isn't it? Like, what is going on here? Don't take anything. Don't wear two tunics. Don't even take a money belt. Like the urgent activity that's going on trying to contain uh, the, uh, the coronavirus at the moment, the times are urgent. They're God. The Son of God, their King, has arrived in person to Israel, who've been waiting for their Messiah. And the arrival of God's Son means for God's Old Testament people that this is an incredibly important and urgent time for them. They're on their last chance, so to speak. It's, it's urgent that they repent, believe and be saved. It's urgent that the word goes out. It's why Jesus commands the apostles, wherever you stay in a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Not dissimilar to what Jesus has done with his hometown. As hard and painful as it was for Jesus to do that, he knew that the urgency, the priority of the gospel, that people hear, means that we, we can't sort of hang our heads. We can't. People need to hear. We need to get on with it. Jesus is also teaching something else. That the welcome that you or I give the gospel message and Jesus' gospel messenger, that's the welcome that Jesus will give us when we die and are standing before him. Alternatively, Jesus says, to reject the gospel message, to reject Jesus' gospel messenger, so they are rejecting and refusing Jesus himself. And Jesus' fair and very sobering promise is that when that person dies, so they will be rejected and refused entry by Jesus into heaven and cast off into hell. Well, the training apostles are sent out in twos, Mark reports. So they went out, proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. Doing the same ministry as Jesus and getting a wonderful response. Do you notice the word many occurs two times here? What we need to notice is that the apostolic gospel they're preaching is the same gospel that John the Baptist was preaching, that Jesus is preaching. It's repentance for forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Because this is the one true and only gospel that is the power of God for the salvation of any who will believe. 
I wonder if you've picked up the thread of grace here in this passage. See, Mark's just reported, hasn't he, that in response to uh, the absolute unbelief of Jesus' hometown, Jesus was not able to do many miraculous signs in his hometown. Twice we're told here that many were made whole by Jesus' apostles' preaching. I think the conclusion is that a good many people did repent and receive the gospel message that Jesus' messengers were preaching. And so how good was it that Jesus decided to get on with the mission? We we, we don't know uh, when we uh, share the word of Jesus, what sort of soil, what sort of heart, what sort of reception the word's going to find. But we don't have to know that. We're not responsible for the results. We're responsible just to continue to hold out the word of life to people, aren't we? We can be confident that there are hearts that are of good soil. There are people waiting for their opportunity to hear the gospel message so they too can repent, believe and be saved. That brings us to that third um, passage, um, which I've called opportunity even for the Herods of this world. Opportunity even for the Herods of this world. Um, And verses 14 to 16 we, we, uh, the word of Jesus is getting out. King Herod uh, has heard the reports. He's heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Of course, Christianity is all about Jesus' name. Knowing life as God intended is all about knowing Jesus and responding to Jesus, because as we read in Colossians 1, it's through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus that we exist. It's why in the book of Acts... Uh, It's reported that Jesus' apostle were preaching repentance and forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name. It's why in chapter 3 of Acts we see the apostle Peter uh, coming by a lame man uh, at the the, um, temple and he says, I've no money to give you but what I do have is the name of Jesus. Religion loads people up with sets of rules, with rituals, with incantations. Christianity is God giving humanity a life transformation, a life transforming relationship in the name of Jesus. Not not works, but through faith, through believing in Jesus' name. See, the message of Christianity is not try harder, not try harder, but turn, turn and trust in Jesus' name and his word for your life. And so, what an opportunity for Rome's provincial king to be saved. Because he's heard the name Jesus. This is Herod's opportunity. More than this, opinion about who this Jesus of Nazareth might be, it's trending. Quite popular is the idea that he's John the Baptist, whom I beheaded, has been raised. But how did John the Baptist lose his head? And so we come to the ugly, beautiful record of John's death at Herod's hand. Part 1, verses 17 to 20, is Herod's opportunity given. We read that, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, I think in this part of the the chapter, the the ugliness, the horribleness of sin, it's it's quite uh, profound and plentiful, isn't it? 
the sexual immorality of Herod's day. It's familiar, uh, certainly to my streets and suburbs in Australia. I'm not sure over here. Herodias has divorced Herod's brother Philip to marry Herod. Uh, John's been proclaiming the truth of the word to Herod. He's been, he's been calling him out, saying, this is unlawful, this is unlawful. Every time uh, John's had the opportunity, he's been uh, speaking the truth of God's word into Herod's life. And Herodias, she's not happy. <laughs> um, I don't know if your name is, if, you, if you've ever been trolled on so, you know, social media or anything like that's ever happened. It is not nice. See, John is, he's, this is the truth of God's word. This is uh, sinful. And so Herodias has a murderous grudge against John the Baptist. Herodias knows if you kill the messenger of God, so God's word is killed off with it. But Herodias has a problem, the seed of God's word. It's found some soil in Herod's heart. We don't know whether it's a good soil yet, but it's, it's germinating, that's for sure, because Herod seems convinced that John is a holy man, that he's of God, he's, he fears John, and therefore he's keeping him safe from Herodias. He won't let her put him to death. In fact, we're told Herod's glad to invite John in regularly. He's glad to hear the word, we're told. There's a beautiful thread of grace here. Even though it might cost him his life, John the Baptist, he just courageously keeps speaking the truth of God's word to Herod in Herod's court. He doesn't care who's around because that's his job. Because he knows actually that's Herod's only hope to save his soul. And it's actually the best hope for John to be released as well. But so he unswervingly keeps holding out the truth of God's word, even though it's putting his life at risk. I mean, it's why he's ended up in prison in the first place. But here we have, through ugly, horrible circumstances, John's in prison. But it's a glimpse into the love of God for both the rural and the royal. Even the most horriblest of kings. Herod wasn't a nice man. But here is God, through John, giving him his opportunity. That brings us, of course, to the next scene in this passage, which is Herodias' opportunity, verses 21 to 25. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out, said to her mother, for what should I ask you? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Not half the kingdom, the head of John the Baptist. See, like a viper waiting to pounce, so the opportune time for Herodias to kill John finally presented itself. She'd heard the public vow that her husband had made in front of his guests. Whatever you ask me, I will give you. Checkmate. Herodias knows how vain Herod is. She's certain that her man will not stand up for this man of God. That he'll actually he's not about to lose face in front of his nobles and leading men. He 
Here we have the ugliness of Herodias as well, using her daughter as an accomplice to commit murder. It's pretty ugly what's going on here. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, say, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so the passage finishes with Herod, his opportunity that he rejects. It's crunch time. Whose name and reputation will he care most about? The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. See? We all know what's going on here. How sad that the word of God only found shallow soil in Herod's heart. Yes, joy, initial joy in hearing it. But with the scorching sun, him having to actually swallow his pride, be humiliated in front of people. No, that's, that's too much of a cost for me. I'm not going to keep John safe anymore. So the cost of Herod keeping his own reputation intact is the death of John the Baptist. He's exceedingly sorry. He's remorseful. But you and I both know in any relationship, just being sorry is not enough to really change anything. Being remorseful about something you've done without true repentance and a determination to turn away from that behaviour to a more appropriate behaviour. We know that doesn't actually change anything in a relationship. Saying sorry, remorse without repentance, it's meaningless. And, and so it is with God. Here is sadly Herod missing his opportunity to repent and to be saved. Well, just as we, a few thoughts as we finish up in terms of what we can take away. As I said, I call today Ugly Beautiful, uh, the ugliness of unbelief, uh, but the beautiful grace of God in an unbelieving world. And there's plenty of ugly. Um, there's so much lie and deceit going on here. And of course, that all finds its culmination as all the characters in Mark's gospel buy into the lies of this world and Jesus is alone on trial and alone hanging on his cross for the sins of the world. God's truth man in a world of lie and unbelief. God's faithful man in a world full of unbelieving people. We've heard that our human tendency will always be uh, to try to familiarise Jesus, uh, to bring Jesus down to our size, uh, a Jesus who's perhaps more aligned to our material desires and worldly gene, dreams. Uh, a more familiar Jesus who's he's not quite so uncomfortable and disruptive to live with. <laughs> Jesus in his own hometown reminded why we need to be daily living the truth of God's word. Because we need to keep being rescued into the truth of Jesus, of his awesomeness, his divinity. His holiness. He's the judge of the universe before whom every human being will stand. But he's also the judge who died to save those who will come to him. Even more ugly, we've just heard, it's just the power of sin and evil left unchecked uh, that murders God's messengers. The ugliness of sexual immorality. And of course, that's been the downfall of many greats in the Bible. 
King David with Bathsheba and Uriah's murder do come to mind. But that's actually why I chose Psalm 95 as that first reading. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like Herod did. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Just take up your Bibles, if you like, and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we've got the writer to the uh, writer of Hebrews. He's writing to Christians who are really um, under the pump, being persecuted. They're finding it hard to keep going on as Christians, being tempted by sin. Hebrews chapter 3, that's page 1205, Hebrews chapter 3. And what we notice at verse 7 there, is half of Psalm 95 is quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That is, the challenges, the reality of sin and unbelief for God's Old Testament people are just as real for New Testament Christians. It's the greatest threat that could potentially trip us up, uh, that could cause us to fall out of running our race to, to God's finish line. And and, and what's the exhortation that comes in verse 12 out of that psalm? Take care, brothers and sisters, take care, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, Dali. It's a big part of what we need to be doing whenever we're meeting with one another, exhorting one another, taking care with our own hearts and getting help from others to take care of our heart as well. It's a team effort. We're all on this, running this race together. But the way we are to run each day is not to focus on your sin. We don't, you don't focus on the ugly. No, no. It's to focus on God's beautiful grace in Jesus. We've seen that, haven't we? That despite Jesus knew that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. But he still went. He still went. We saw that in response to the ugly unbelief of the hometown, Jesus didn't give up. He continued his father's mission. In fact, he enlisted all of his apostles and sent them out as well. Now, given that Jesus' Mary, uh, Jesus' mother Mary and his brother James eventually became followers of Jesus, is this a reminder for us that you shouldn't ever give up on people? Don't give up on family. Keep persevering. But more than this, we we just see the beautiful way that John the Baptist, uh, he's in a hard place, but he keeps faithfully holding out the truth of God's word to Herod at great cost. And the call to follow Jesus is to keep daily denying yourself, take up your cross and to follow Jesus. The hope of grace, the river of grace that runs through uh, the ugliness of unbelief in this passage, of course, is the word of God. It's the word of God. And so we need to daily keep giving God's word first place in our lives. Not just the bits we like, but all of it. As we think about what it could look and sound like for us to be getting on with the Father's mission, holding out the word of life for people. There's Rachel who I met. She was a 
from China, a university student, um, needed to chat with someone. She was sitting on a bench. She, she was trying to, wanted to be Christian. She, she knew about Jesus. Um, she'd been going to the university ch- Christian church, but she was about to go home to her parents. And she, like, she, her mind was just, it was in a, she just was so conflicted. Her parents didn't know that she was a Christian. What was she going to say? Would she be able to stand up for Jesus and count the cost, whatever that may or may not be with her parents? We talked, we prayed. Um, I found out 12 months later that she actually didn't tell her parents that trip that she was a Christian. But she did six months later. It was pretty hard. (laughs) But they're working things out. It can be so hard with family. There's a story of Aisha, my daughter. Uh, she was asked to be the senior student uh, in her high school. It's, it's one of the most prestigious public schools in Adelaide, 1,600 children, to be the senior student in year 12 of that school. But she decided to say no to that honour. would have been great on her resume. Because she knew... She only had a certain amount of extra time along with her studies and she really wanted to start a Christian group for students in the school so they could come and find out about Jesus. There's a 45-year-old father. He finally got the promotion he he wanted, the the more money. It was great, well, for three months because he realised he was struggling to take his family to church. He wasn't able to serve on the rosters. And so three months later, he waited for years for this promotion. He actually went back to his boss and asked for his old job back. The young professional couple who uh, had the choice of three different jobs, they took the lowest paying job so they could go and actually be part of starting a new church. There's Tim Blagg. He's halfway through a medical degree. He decided to leave his medical degree to go and do a ministry internship. His parents, who were great Christian parents, they reacted quite strongly. But you're called to be a doctor. It's funny how, you know, you're called to be a doctor or an engineer, but you're never called to actually work taking out the garbage. Or It's just funny how we think about that, isn't it? Don't know what. Things are great now. They always come, sitting in the first row, whenever he's preaching. He's finished Bible college, finished his traineeship. He's leading the youth ministry in Adelaide. They couldn't be more proud of him. But gee, it was hard negotiating those family relationships to get there. I don't know what it looks like for you, where you're at, how you're struggling to hear all of God's word for all of your life, to be faithful and trusting that it really, really is the best way for you. This passage reminds us that whatever's going on, however hard it gets, God's grace, that river of grace, it's always sufficient to bring you home safely and into your Saviour's arms. How about we pray now? Loving Father, we praise and thank you for just, I guess it's firstly the reminder about us that we we only can be saved by your grace. And so we thank you for your grace that has saved us. But please will you continue to teach us your grace 
that we might turn away and flee from sin and be trained for righteousness and made wise for salvation continually in your Son. Help us, we pray, to continue to honour your word always, to never be ashamed of you and your word in our lives. We pray that you would help us to run this race together for our salvation and your glory and the salvation of the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.